Somebody is uncovered uh, in college. You were, I've seen the video, you were a libertarian rapper. Explain that, Mr. Ramswamy. <laughs> well, look, they, I, the things they're digging up, they're going deep. And I have to say, some of these opposition research stories are false, but I will confirm that one is true. I was a, a bit of a libertarian freestyler in college and had some fun with it. Do you That's remember accurate. any of that rapper? Do you have some freestyling to do today, Vivek? Go ahead. You want to join us on the campaign trail. You know, you want to join us on the campaign trail. You can do that. Except I, I often open up. I say my name's Vivek. It rhymes with cake. It ain't about thee. It isn't about me. It is about thee. The United States is about liberty. So Fox and friends, join us on the trail. We'll have some fun. I'll see you at the trail. Very nicely done, sir. All right. And we are on. What's up, everybody? It's Mr. Manger once again. Kindest, kindest regards. So, well, I don't focus um, solely on, you know, the presidential race or anything like that, and I don't want this. I, I don't want this show just to become a byproduct of all that's going on with the election clown show. <laughs> But, on occasion, I would like to cover certain candidates. Certain ones might be worth your time weighing. And um, one that certainly comes to mind is the hardest uh, name to pronounce so far in the whole race. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I hope I got that right. I wanted to cover Ramaswamy because I find him perhaps, perhaps by far the most intelligent uh, candidate, the most charismatic. I mean, sure, Trump's fairly charismatic, but he doesn't strike anyone, <laughs> save his most loyal sheep, as a very high IQ individual who speaks to other people as though they are likewise intelligent. I think Ramaswamy has a major advantage in that he speaks to you as though you're not three years old. Imagine that. And so for people who did like DeSantis because he he came to prominence as an intelligent guy who could speak on the same wavelength as COVID scientists, some who were dissenting. But nevertheless, when he determined it was time to roll back so many restrictions in Florida, that was his moment. Now, it seems from then on, DeSantis has had problems. He's giving very ambiguous answers to a lot of questions. He's not standing firm on too many issues. And that comes into play for Ramaswamy as a major advantage. Anyway, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is getting a lot of attention in part because he is running on radically reforming the administrative state, sometimes known as the deep state, essentially saying there seem to be more than three branches of government right now at the federal level. And that's obviously not the design that we were given. Another thing 
Ramaswamy is known for is his anti-woke stuff and his anti-ESG platform. Here's Ramaswamy's appearance on CNN with Caitlin Collins. Here, you know, you're touting your outsider status as equality, but I don't know of any president in recent history we've had that did not either hold office or was not a national figure like Trump was. So why do you think you can win? So look, I'm running distinctively on my vision for this country. I'm not running on my biography or my business credentials. I'm running on a vision for this country that I've articulated over the last several years. And a lot of the conservative base actually is familiar with me through the three books I've written, two of which are published, traveled the country and otherwise. But my view is we're in the middle of this national identity crisis, where if you ask most people my age, really any age, what does it mean to be an American today? You get a blank stare in response. And I think that is the vacuum at the heart of our national soul. And I think the, the opportunity for the GOP now is not just to complain about wokeness or gender ideology or climate ideology, but actually to go upstream and fill that black hole with a vision of American national identity that runs so deep that it dilutes these agendas to irrelevance and actually unifies us as a country. And I'm running because... I believe genuinely that I'm the candidate best positioned to actually deliver national unity by reawakening that shared American identity. Well, on that front, one of the things, you know, you've been dubbed the CEO of Anti-Woke. You have written several of these books. You, you've been very vocal of your criticism of what you say is wokeism, woke religion. Can you just define how you, you know, how do you define woke? Yeah, and I'm going to define it in neutral terms, not in critical terms. Being woke refers to becoming alert to invisible societal injustices, generally based on genetically inherited characteristics like race, sex, and sexual orientation, and then being called upon to act on those injustices using whatever potential legally means are necessary, including the market to do it. That's a neutral definition that even most proponents of wokeism in the United States would agree with. Now, my criticism of this is I think that it's inherently divisive to tell us that we're nothing more than the characteristics we inherit on the day we're born. That divides us on the basis of race and sex and sexual orientation. And then when that merges with capitalism, which is what I've actually been the biggest critic of, what it does is we lose the sanctuary, the apolitical sanctuary in our economy that otherwise brings us together, whether we're black or white, even whether we're Democrat or Republican. That's one of the underappreciated reasons why capitalism has to stay apolitical. And I'm proud to say I've been the leader on leading that fight over the course of the last couple of years and with some progress because I think we're turning the tide where companies are realizing that they're not doing good for themselves or even doing good for society by engaging in these fraught political and social questions. Do you consider yourself a conservative? How would you define that? I do consider myself a conservative, but I don't believe that the defining political debate in this country is between Republicans and Democrats. I think it is between those who are fundamentally pro-American, whether you believe in the ideals that set this nation into motion, from free speech and open debate to meritocracy to self-governance over aristocracy. Do you believe in those ideals or are you anti-American? Do you actually wish to apologize for a nation whose existence is pinned to those ideals? And if you divide it up that way, I think it's actually an 80-20 split in this country. It's not just 50-50. And I think that sets up for a potential landslide election in 2024. Frankly, part of my motivation to run is to deliver that because I think that's the single most unifying thing we could get out of this country, just like a 1980 or 1984 style, Reagan style victory as well. So, so several viewers were pretty impressed with what you just heard there. And just to give you a sampling of responses from the YouTube link there, one of them says, Wow, that interview certainly didn't go her way at all. He is intelligent, well-spoken, and witty. He's got my vote. 
and a second one. Well spoken, Mr. Ramaswamy. Good to see you addressing these issues with good nature, clarity, and intelligence. Thirdly, I don't think I've ever seen someone who can answer tough questions this well. Andy swears he never took any PR training, never uses teleprompters, and writes his own speeches. For once, it's a real person in politics. And last, this guy is pretty good at answering questions and obviously very intelligent. He wasn't stumped with a single question. So obviously, that's how you want to come off. That's how you want to leave your audience when you actually have the airtime to reach the CNN audience. I'm going to cover an issue from the we're not supposed to talk about it category, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, because, yeah, we're not supposed to talk about it, but see if I care. Uh, I care more about the rulers actually being legally qualified than I do about politically correct pieties. So when they come in conflict, the thought police will just have to be upset. It's not clear whether Vivek Ramaswamy meets the criteria for natural-born citizenship based on the doctrine found in The Law of Nations by Emmerich de Vattel. Now, I did an episode on this issue exclusively before Ramaswamy announced his candidacy, but just to rehash some of the main points from it, Benjamin Franklin remarked to Vettel editor C.G.F. Dumas how the book came to us in good season when the circumstances of a rising state make it necessary frequently to consult and that his copy was continually in the hands of members of our Congress. Now here's a quote from Vettel himself. I say that in order to be of the country, it is necessary that a person be born of a father who is a citizen, for if he is born there of a foreigner, it will be only the place of his birth and not his country. Now, the term natural-born citizen derives from the English legal concept of natural-born subject. This dates back to Calvin's case, a 1608 decision. There's two principles that qualify a natural-born citizen. The first is jus soli, the law of the soil. The second is jus sanguinis, the law of blood. Jus soli holds that a person is a citizen or subject of the sovereign that ruled over the territory of his birth. Jus sanguinis recognized natural-born citizenship from the patrilineal descent only at the time the Constitution was ratified. That is, a person was recognized as a natural-born citizen of his father's country. English law held this as an exception to use solely for children of foreign ambassadors. Let's keep all that in mind as we weigh this piece from the post and email written by Charles F. Kirshner. Now, I consulted this piece because very few others seem to be covering it, at least with any hope of providing much detail in their argument. So the title of this piece is Vivek Ramaswamy Not a Natural-Born Citizen of the United States to Constitutional Standards, 
not constitutionally eligible to be president and commander-in-chief of our military. Ugh, what a long title. <laughs> okay, so it starts off by saying, Vivek Ramaswamy's parents immigrated from India to the USA about the year 1983, per publicly available information, and Vivek was born soon thereafter in 1985. It takes at least five years to become a naturalized United States citizen. His father and mother emigrated from India to the USA about 40 years ago, per the April 3rd, 2023 article in the Washington Post. Now I'm going to pause right here. There's a few problems just in this much. The article, if you click on it, uh, it uses a stool as an illustration of natural-born citizenship, and it's not the one I was defining for you by Vettel. Leg one of this stool, born in the USA. Leg two, father must be a U.S. citizen. Leg three, mother must be a U.S. citizen. Trivia. Which leg is wrong under the most viable definition of natural-born citizenship as espoused by Vittel, the mother. Another flaw already in this article. The article repeatedly claims, quote, it takes at least five years to become a naturalized United States citizen, unquote. Yet the data analysis from Boundless shows that it takes an average of 10 months to become a naturalized citizen. So it's possible, then, that V.G. Ramaswamy, his father, became naturalized in the period between 1983 and 1985 when Vivek was born. If so, he is constitutionally eligible to be president. Now, while I'm encouraged by Vivek's crusade against wokeism, ESG, the administrative state, all that is wonderful, I did find one of his... Twitter videos worth taking pause over. I'm going to go ahead and play that for you and interject later on in it. So here's the thing about the fentanyl crisis in the United States. It is completely supply side driven. What does that mean? It's not just the fact that people have this raging demand for fentanyl all of a sudden. It started when we started to see flooding of fentanyl across our southern border. So what's going on there? The thing that's going on is that China is effectively waging a modern opium war on the United States. They had their experience of that a long time ago. They're now using that same tactic against the U.S., where China is providing raw materials at really inexpensive prices, low prices, to Mexican drug cartels. Well, if you're the Mexican drug cartels, that just expanded your profit margin because now your inputs to production, to synthetic production of fentanyl, just went down by a lot. That allows you to profit more if you're able to sell more. That then created the incentive for them to push more fentanyl across the southern border, including through their networks that are now, by the way, in the United States, and not only causing violence directly in the United States, but supplying fentanyl across the country, contributing to over 100,000 deaths per year due to fentanyl in the United States. That's over 50 times the number of people who died on the day of 9-11. So we have to wake up to that reality. What do we do about it? If it's a supply side problem, you deal with the supply problem. 
In fact, there are even good evidence now, there's books being written about it, of Chinese actors in Mexico itself helping to create, even synthetically create that fentanyl that cartels are using to send across the southern border. What do we need? We need a U.S. president willing to use military force to annihilate those cartels. If we can use our military to take out ISIS or somewhere, something, somebody else somewhere across the world, we can do it to the drug cartels south of our own border. Okay, so for as much as we can appreciate Ramaswamy's position on the war in Ukraine, as he's articulated elsewhere so well, it seems that gets lost real quick when there's a crucial issue that arises right across our national border. And that's not where you want to provoke threats. We can call Mexico, say, look, we're going to aid you in doing this for a fraction of what we spent in Ukraine. But if the Mexican president isn't willing to carry it out, the U.S. needs to be willing to do it on our own. And that is how we solve the fentanyl crisis, as opposed to just being a passive bystander, which I refuse to do as U.S. president. What about calling China? The Biden administration is considering the rollback of sanctions against a Chinese police agency in return for China's cooperation against fentanyl. Now, whether fentanyl is the unsolicited poison Ramaswamy makes it out to be, or a dangerous recreational substance, legalization is not being considered right now. Considering real-world options, this is a far better deal than waging a literal war on China, a country that outnumbers the U.S. population more than four to one, a country that is increasingly siding with nuclear Russia, a country that possesses an estimated nuclear stockpile of over 400 weapons of its own. Now, for now, this effort isn't getting very far. To quote from this article, from New York Post, Biden administration may lift some China sanctions linked to abuse to deal with the fentanyl crisis. By Josh Christensen, the article says, Chinese companies have helped fuel the fentanyl scourge by shipping chemicals required for its production to Mexican cartels. Sources familiar with the proposed U.S.-China deal told the outlet, New York Post, that Chinese officials, quote, haven't agreed to anything yet, and we are a little stalled on where to go, unquote. A State Department rep told the Post on Monday, the People's Republic of China has so far declined to respond to our persistent efforts to resume bilateral cooperation on counter-narcotics issues. Meanwhile, Vivek isn't alone in this crusade. Back to the article, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and former Attorney General Bill Barr, among others, have argued the U.S. military should be authorized to deal with the cartels. Okay, so recall too that late in his term, Donald Trump considered launching missiles at drug cartels in Mexico, as recalled by former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who objected to that move. Back at Vivek, it doesn't sound like an honest characterization of any position short of firing missiles next door as just being a passive bystander. That's not properly thinking through your options. That's engaging in a false dichotomy 
and dismissing every humane alternative as passivity and appeasement. That's going it alone, when you would otherwise have the cooperation and resources of nations that resent the problem perhaps as much as you do. But they aren't going to cooperate with a bully. They're going to want to know that you know where your jurisdiction ends. There may be terrible abuses of power within China. Mexico may find itself overwhelmed with the problems of drug cartels. But action taken shouldn't be done in an antagonistic spirit. Now, I mean, even with that issue, even with maybe several issues, I still think Vivek Ramaswamy is absolutely worth following. I don't know of a better candidate, at least on the Republican side, who's running right now. So, I mean, let's keep our eye open. Let's see what happens. In the meantime, I am going to leave it at that. This has been another episode of the Austro-Jeffersonian Empire of Liberty podcast. I'm Mr. Manger. Thanks again for listening.